Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, June 30th, we are studying James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. How does friendship with God, rather than friendship with the world, how does that show forth in the lives of Christians? St. James tells us it shows itself in our speech toward our neighbor, and in our attitude toward tomorrow. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Hans Feeney. Pastor Feeney serves at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri. Pastor Feeney, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's great to be back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Feeney, give us some context in the book of James. We don't always get the same sort of context as we do with St. Paul, where it's one thing after another, connecting the dots very easily. Sometimes he jumps around a bit more, but there does seem to be a connection to the previous text. What do we need to know going into this text for today? Yeah, so if you kind of hop back to uh, really to James chapter two, uh, where you know James has these famous words that can sometimes cause Lutherans a little bit of trouble if they don't understand them properly uh, about how faith without works is dead, uh, and that kind of section is is basically James explaining to people that you don't use your faith uh, as an excuse to not love your neighbor. So it's uh, so you don't look at those who are hungry and say to them, hey, guys, I just want you to know uh, you can go home and be assured that my faith is very strong. But rather that true Christian faith is faith that will compel you to love and support your neighbors and to to um, to manifest good works uh, out of love for the God who has saved you. So as, as we Lutherans are prone to say, uh, good works are not a cause of salvation, but they are a result of salvation. So those who have received salvation through faith will seek to live according to the will of God. Uh, and as James kind of then goes along with this, he goes into chapter three and basically saying, okay, so if we are in fact Christians who are uh, to live and to act in accordance with our faith, here's how we do it. And he talks, for example, in chapter three about, has these famous words about taming your tongue, about how it is that you speak to people, uh, how it is that you that you think about yourself as a Christian. Uh, and then going into chapter four, uh, he kind of expands on that, right? You know, where he talks about quarreling and fighting amongst Christians. This is not the way that um, that you are uh, to be. This is not the way that you're supposed to live. Uh, so don't live uh, by giving into your sinful temptations, but rather, as he says in 4, chapter 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So then once we get to verse 11, uh, he's kind of expanding on that sort of that same idea or giving other examples of how it is as Christians that we need to live according to um, the uh, the guidance of the Holy Spirit rather than uh, living according to the deceit of our flesh. So when he starts talking about not speaking evil against one another, and he kind of goes on in this section starting with 11 to describe how it is that uh, speaking evil against one another and judging one another in, a, in an ungodly way is contrary to the law of God. It's contrary to how God created us to live uh, amongst one another as Christians. We're going to see several repeated ideas here from other parts of the books of book of James. This matter of speech and how we use our words is a theme that he's brought up in, in several places. The matter of doing the law is is another one of those very famous things that James, James says that sometimes causes us a bit of trouble. Be not hearers only, but doers of the law as well. So there's, there's going to be a lot of connections in this text that we'll be able to draw to other sections of the books, book of James as well. Let, let's go ahead and read the text as we get started then. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, 
today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That is the text for today, James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. So, Pastor Feeney, the text that we've got today starts with this matter of speech again. And James particular says, do not speak evil against one another brothers. Sounds like he's talking about the way that we address one another within the church. Yeah, he's so that term obviously is associated with um, with with your fellow Christians uh, as obviously a huge theme that we see in the New Testament is uh, the idea that those who have been joined together through the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism, uh, share in the in the adoption of God. So God has uh, has through faith in Christ adopted us to be His sons. Christ has claimed us as his, as His brothers by dying for our sins and rising for our justification upon the cross. And so, therefore, all of those who belong to Christ, uh, regardless of their uh, biology, uh, biological background or, or genetic background, rather, um, are in fact true brothers. That you you are more a brother of your fellow Christians than you are of those who share uh, the same biological parents. And that here is the basis for not speaking evil against one another. It seems that there's a, a bit of an escalation, perhaps, from what we had in James chapter three. In James three verse nine, he wrote that you know with our tongue, with our speech. We would bless God, but we would also curse people. And there the, the grounds was that people are made in the likeness of God. And that's certainly true within the church. But here within the church, how much more would we not speak evil of each other because we are brothers in Christ, more closely united in Christ than we are even as fellow human beings? Yeah, absolutely. That there's, um, And this is kind of, I think, the irony about so much of Christian life is, uh, you know, I know this, obviously everyone's uh, life examples are different. And it kind of depends on what part of the world you're coming from. So, you know, if you're, if you're living in a part of the world where people are experiencing profound uh, persecute, where Christians are experiencing profound persecution, um, then you can, you know, perhaps certainly say that the worst hatred and the worst you've ever been treated was by people outside the church. But for a lot of folks, you know, I would certainly include myself in this, that the worst treatment I've ever received from people has been from folks who were uh, supposed to be my fellow Christians, you know, people who were supposed to recognize you as a brother in Christ, supposed to love you uh, and and desire to treat you in a godly way, and yet uh, failed uh, miserably at, at doing that. And th- that is, of course, a great and profound scandal because as, as Christians, you know, in, in the same way that, um, you know, an earthly son bears his father's last name, at least in our culture, um, and the way that he behaves reflects that name and, and, and what he does, um, what he does and what he says and does, the way he treats people, you know, reflects on the name of his father. So in the same way, we blaspheme the name of God when we as Christians uh, fail to show the mercy and love and the forgiveness of our Father in heaven. Hmm. Now, the evil speech that James has in mind here, he, he puts it, I, I mean, generally, he says, do not speak evil against one another. But then he also is going to more narrowly define it. He's going to talk about the matter of judging a brother. Is that a, just a narrow category? Or are we looking at a, a wide category here? How do we how do we talk about this evil speech that James has in mind? Yeah, I think this is just the, the best way to understand this is just to simply look at it from the lens of the Eighth Commandment. So, And that especially seems to be what James is getting into when he, when he talks about the law. So uh, you know, the way I f- frequently talk about the commandments when I'll teach uh, a youth confirmation or adult confirmation class is to try to talk about them from the perspective of what gift is God showing us that he's given us in this commandment? You know, so for example, in the first commandment, when God says, you shall have no other gods, what he's really doing is he's showing us that he's given himself to us. He's pushed everything, every other rival uh, God off the table and given us himself. In the second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God. He's showing us how he's given us his name to call upon and that we therefore are to treat it uh, rightly. 
So in the Eighth Commandment, when God tells us not to bear false witness against our neighbor, and when you really kind of expand that into Luther's brilliant explanation of the Eighth Commandment, that what we really see is that God is giving us the gift of our reputation. And um, because a, a good reputation is essential for any number of things in life, a good reputation is necessary to be able to have a job, to be able to have people that love you and care for you. Uh, it's necessary in, in every conceivable way. And so when you take away people's good reputations, you take away their livelihood, you take away their honor, you take away their dignity, you take away all these gifts that God gave them to have. And so we we never seek to take away our neighbor. Taking away our neighbor's reputation may be a side effect of you know seeking to bring justice to someone. You know, so for example, there, there's no way to to have a murder trial. You know, if someone if someone murders your friend, uh, there's no way for the guy who's who murdered your friend to get through that trial with his reputation intact. But the goal is of of that is not really to destroy his reputation, but to bring justice to the one. Uh, that he's harmed. And so I think what, what James is getting at here is that this kind of judgment that is, it's not godly, it's not uh, the right kind of judgment, it's not uh, proper earthly authorities seeking to bring justice and order to the world, but it's you lying about people, it's you complaining about people, you uh, seeking to harm people's reputations. And in particular, um, you know, I think what's always kind of at, at the root issue there of breaking the eighth commandment is always you're trying to make yourself seem more righteous by comparison. So you try to tear down those who are around you. And this is precisely what it is that the eighth commandment forbids. And so this is that's what James is getting at here when he, when he references the, the law is that when you judge your brother, when you speak evil against him, when you try and destroy his reputation, you are placing yourself in opposition to the law of God. And that that is quite the move that he makes then to, to say on the one hand in verse 11, look, you're speaking against your brother, you're judging your brother. But when you do that, you're actually doing that against the law. You're actually speaking against the law and judging the law. So what's the, I mean, how does, how does James make that move? How is it when I speak evil against a brother or judge a brother in this evil way that you've described, how is that actually doing the same thing to the law? Yeah. So, well, what, what James says here in, in verse 12, there, so there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are, you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So in other words, uh, all judgment comes from God. So no man has the right to judge his neighbor unless God has essentially delegated that responsibility to him through his earthly authorities. You know, So this is what you see in what Paul says very clearly in Romans chapter 13, that God has given secular authorities, he's given earthly authorities the right to punish evildoers in order to build a just society. But, um, but you need to have God actually give you that authority. You know, this is why it is as a, as a parent, you can't go around bossing, other pe- uh, bossing around other people's children just because they're children. You can boss your children around and tell them what to do because by virtue of God making you a father or a mother, he's given them to you. He's given that authority to you. But you can't exercise that authority where it doesn't exist. And when you try to exercise that authority where it doesn't exist, um, you're you're diving headfirst into sin because you're doing what's kind of at the root of, of every sin that there is, which is looking at God's law and saying, essentially, now nah, you don't you don't know what you're talking about. Right. So I mean if you if you go back to the very first sin, to you know, Eve being deceived by the serpent. So God says, uh, you cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the devil comes to Eve and says, ah, God's holding out on you. So, so Eve essentially looks at God's commandment uh, and says, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, so my judgment, my law, what I declare to be good and right is what needs to take place here rather than God's. And that's at the heart of everything, right? So when we uh, when we worship false gods, that's what we're doing is we're saying the God who exists uh, doesn't know what he's doing. I'm going to go after this God over here that's going to order the world the way that I want it. When we commit adultery, what we're saying is, well, God has forbidden me from giving my flesh to the per- this person I'm not married to and from taking the flesh of this person that hasn't been given to me. Uh, but God doesn't know what he's talking about. In order to achieve the happiness that I need to have, in order to have the sense of fulfillment that I want to have, I need to do that. 
And in the same way here, that's that's what we're doing. So God's law has forbidden you from destroying the reputation of your neighbor. And there's so there's no way for you to destroy the reputation of your neighbor without first saying, God's law is stupid. It's wrong. God doesn't know what he's talking about. The world that he's trying to build with this law is not the world that needs to exist. And I need to manufacture that world by basically shoving God's law out of the way. Yeah. So, there, so there's no way to, uh, to disobey God's law and to break God's law without actually attacking and rejecting it and declaring that his law is in fact evil. And, and that's how James then is also able to say that you're no longer a doer of the law because you've set yourself above the law as if, like you said, I get to judge. God, your way is stupid. Let's do it mine. Now, all of a sudden, you're not actually doing the law, which I, I think you know the Eighth Commandment particularly would be one of those which would direct us to our own actions and away from our neighbors, quit looking at your neighbor and what he is or isn't doing and judging that. Rather, pay attention to your own actions, your own doing of the law. And so when you start to judge a neighbor, particularly within the church, now you are taking God's place and you've stopped doing the law, which is, as James has already laid out, we are not to just be hearers, but we are to be doers of these things as well. Yeah. So there, I mean, there is something somewhat implied. I mean, we all know, we know that earthly judges are not above the law in the sense that if they break it, they need to face the same penalties that the rest of us do. At least that's the way that, you know, our society should work. But there, there is something just kind of reflect, something of the divine arrangement reflected in, you know, our earthly arrangements, where you recognize that when you are in a courtroom and you're standing before a judge, the judge is not there because he uh, he's not there to obey the law. He's there mm-hmm. to declare what the law is and to see that the law is upheld. And when it comes to when it comes to God, this is certainly the case. So God is holy and God is just. But God is above the law in the sense that he doesn't create the law uh, simply to give himself rules to follow. It's not an act of mm-hmm. self-discipline for him, you know, in the same way that you know, if you do intermittent fasting or you uh, have a certain exercise regimen that you're following just to kind of train yourself. So the law is given for us to obey and for God to oversee, for God to, mm-hmm. to see that we do in fact obey it. So when we uh, slander our neighbors, when we speak evil against them, what, what James is saying is you're taking yourself out of the vocation of, of someone who has been called to obey the law and you're placing yourself into the vocation of of the one who's been called to oversee the law, to see that people obey the law, and you've placed yourself into the position of judge. And in this specific circumstance, God has not given that authority to you. Right. And so that finally, I mean, this is ultimately as James brings this to a, a climax, what's really happening when I start to judge my neighbor and I set myself up as judge of the law, what I'm really doing, and I think you, you've already started to take us this way, Pastor Feeney, but, but let's make sure we, we get the whole way there. What, we're, what I really do when I start to judge my neighbor is I set myself up as judge. I have made myself into an idol. I'm breaking finally the first commandment. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, all, you know, all the commandments are interconnected. They're all distinct, but there's no way to break one without sort of shattering the rest of them uh, along in the process. And this is especially true of the first commandment. You know, so as, as Luther talks about in the small catechism, uh, what does it mean when we say you shall have no other gods? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. So whenever you place your fear, your love, or your trust in something other than the true God, you've made an idol of that thing. And when it comes to judging our neighbors, uh, it's, it's very clear how that works. So uh, you see your neighbor doing something that uh, either is wrong or that you just simply perceive to be wrong. And you see that uh, and, you, and you decide that you are the one who needs to make the world right. And when, so when God doesn't do that the way that you want, you take it into your own hands. Well, in that instance, what are you doing? You're trusting in yourself more than you're trusting in God. You're declaring that God can't be counted on 
to fulfill his promises, to build a just world. So you're going to build it for him. So that, yeah, that's, it's just in and of itself is always an act of idolatry. So every sin is really a manifestation of idolatry and in one way or another. And certainly when it comes to uh, sins against the eighth commandment, when it comes to judging and condemning your brother, when it's not your place to do so, that's certainly what's going on. And that, I think, leads very well into the way that James talks about this in verse 12. There's one lawgiver and judge. This is very clearly God. But then he calls God also the one who is able to save and to destroy. So on on the side of he's able to save, that would be what you're talking about. Look, we can we can trust God to make this right, to be the correct judge, to make sure that that justice comes in his way and in his time. He's also the one that's able to destroy. And and you, Christian, placing yourself as judge, what what awaits you? Will you receive that judgment? I think, I mean, feel free to comment on that, Pastor Feeney. And also, I mean, it seems that, you know, we've seen this in the book of James many times over the course of this study, how James loves to draw from Jesus' words, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. And, and here it seems we've got a, a very clear preaching and a correct preaching, as opposed to the way our world might take. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not lest ye be judged. Our world misunderstands that, but James here gives us a very good way to understand and apply that. Yeah, so, um, so the, yeah, this is, I think, the really great thing about, about the a Christian understanding of judgment is that uh, judgment is, is difficult. It's a it's a profoundly hard thing to do, you know. I mean, you you find all kinds of situations in life where you say, "Oh, I wouldn't want to be the person to make that decision," you know. So whether it's the president deciding to go to war, uh, you know, whether it's a, a parent deciding how to, you know, respond how to deal with their child after their child has you know, murdered someone or something of of that nature, you know, how do you respond to that? It's a profoundly difficult thing, and and it does show the height of human arrogance. When we come into situations and we and we are so eager to jump into the position of condemning our neighbor, uh, when when we treat yeah when we treat those situations as though that's a really easy decision to make. This guy's bad. He's terrible. He deserves for everyone to know what a miserable, rotten sinner he is. But the reality is is that when, you know when you apply mercy to someone versus justice, right? So when when so we oftentimes talk about these concepts of mercy and justice in the Christian faith. So, you know, if you're a judge and you have someone who has uh, committed murder but is profoundly repentant, um, it, you know, just is like bawling in tears, apologizing to the family of the person, you know, that he's killed. And, and if you're the judge in that moment, you know, I mean, it's easy to make the to be the judge if you say if the guy is not repentant at all and he says, hey, if you let me out of here, I'm, I'm going to kill the rest of your family, too. Well, you know, that's an easy situation to go. Oh, OK, we should probably put this guy in jail for the rest of his life and, and never give him an opportunity to do that. But are you lenient with the person who's profoundly sorrowful? Uh, especially too, if the, if the family is forgiving of that person. Right. So that's a, not necessarily an easy decision to make. Uh, and it, what it, that reflects is that there is uh, something far that that the wisdom of God is something that's far above us and far greater than us in these circumstances. And we don't know when it's the right time always to deal with a stern fist, and when it's when it's the right time to be merciful and and compassionate. I mean, you deal with this all the time when you're a pastor. You deal with this all the time, where you'll meet people and you'll encounter people in your congregation who are incredibly bullheaded and they're angry about things. And at first, you just think, "Oh, this is a." Yeah, terrible person. And we, we, you know, I need to deal with my elders in this situation of, of rebuking this person and, you know, excommunicating them or whatever it might be. But then there are oftentimes you come to find that that person's anger comes from a place of profound pain and, and, and awful things have happened to that person that have made them that way. And so you realize that maybe actually coming in with a, a, an incredibly stern hand is not actually the way to deal with things. So, uh, really, I think what James is sort of showing us is, is that part of a judge's job, sometimes a judge's job is to condemn, is to destroy, and sometimes a ju- judge's job is to be merciful, it's to, it's to save. And uh, we don't always know when the right thing is to apply, you know, when the right time is to apply which hand, to deal with the hand of mercy or to deal with the hand of justice. And we, so we, that's why we leave these things to God, because God knows when to use which hand and when not to, and, or, or when to use the other, rather. And by taking that upon ourselves, uh, we're 
putting ourselves into a position that we're just simply not into a vocation that we're just simply not qualified to exercise. Mm. You're talking about the the difficulty of of judging and and making the right decision, and and as a pastor, that the experience that you know what you're talking about there is certainly one. Even just, I mean, my own reflections as a pastor trying to make decisions, navigating this pandemic, and and what to do and and what not to do, and and looking at what other churches were doing and what we're doing, and and I I tried. I don't know that I did it perfectly, but I tried early on to resolve to try to do to not to speak evil against my brother pastors, who who I trusted were were making good decisions for the good of their congregation with the information that they had. And I, I prayed that they would do the, the same for me. Just just trying to navigate a congregation through this pandemic has, has taught me some of the humility that I think James is looking at right here. Yeah, I know. I think that's a really good, it's a really good example of this, that um, life is a messy and, um, you know, oftentimes it's very easy to judge situations from, you know, 50 yards out. But once you get up really close and deal with actual sinners and when you're trying to figure out, you know, what is outright sin, what's weakness, mm-hmm. um, you know, what's, what, when is someone driven by fear? When are they driven by um wisdom it's it's not easy and um so yeah the the more that we're able to withhold judgment uh and be charitable with people and be patient with people the the better off we're all going to be yeah let let god be god in these matters you're listening to sharper iron here on worldwide kfu we're going to take a short break but we'll be right back please stick around Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. It is Tuesday, June 30th, and we are looking at James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17 with Pastor Hans Feeney, who serves as pastor at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri. Pastor Feeney, prior to the break, we looked at verses 11 and 12. James talks about the need to speak not evil against each other and not judgment against each other, but let God be the judge, let him be the lawgiver, the one who is able to save and destroy and, and place ourselves under that, particularly in the matter of our speech. Now, in in verse 13, it, it seems he, he changes topics, he changes directions a bit. The, the title, at least in the ESV, which sometimes is good, sometimes isn't as good, is boasting about tomorrow. It, is there a connection between these two sections of text we're looking at today? Yeah, I mean, I think that he's doing what pastors oftentimes do, which is it's not so much that he's changing subjects, but he's changing examples. So, you know, he's he's showing the kind of the overarching theme of this is to um, is to live your life recognizing that God is God and you're not. So um, you do, so you don't need to uh, exercise judgment over your brothers in a way that God hasn't given you to do. And then as we're getting into this, he gives another example of people failing to recognize that God is God and we're not, which is people kind of trying to conduct their lives in such a way that where they imagine that they are uh, the masters of their of their own destiny. It, it kind of it reminds me a little bit of that bumper sticker that was uh, popular for well, I'd imagine a number of years and which I always got a kick out of where the bumper sticker said, Jesus is my co-pilot. And you're go- and you're going, you're co-pilot. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're in charge of everything, and then you hand the reins over to him when you when you need to take a nap, or you know, uh, when things get a little bit too too troublesome. That's not a Christian way of understanding how our life works. Our, you know, if we're going to use the airplane analogy, Jesus is the pilot. Uh, you are the passenger, and he will ensure that you get to where you need to go. Um, and there, you know, and there certainly there are things that are going to be left up to your to your free will in terms of things that aren't you know matters of a spiritual nature. So you know, in the same way that you can, uh, in the same way that you know you choose you know chicken or fish uh, for your entree on the plane, you know you can choose whether it, whether or not you're going to whether you'll get married or not, whether you take a job in a certain place or not. But the idea that that under normal circumstances you're driving the plane of your life. 
or, or you're flying the plane of your life uh, is is not at all how certainly how James would want us to understand things. Hmm. Okay, so, so yeah, all right. God is God. We're not. That's the continuing theme. And so James is going to use an example. He said, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So, so James is using this as an example of someone who's trying to pilot their own lives. But the, I mean, the example seems really basic. I don't know if that's the right word, but I mean, they're just talking about, well, this is what we're planning to do tomorrow. It seems maybe innocent. It seems innocent enough. What What's wrong with this line of thinking? Where has the line been crossed? Yeah, it would be a little confusing if James had sort of left uh, off the illustration after um, after verse 14 or so, but he really brings a lot of light to that in, in verse 15. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So his point is not so much that it's arrogant for and and uh, and idolatrous for Christians to make plans in their lives. I mean, that's certainly certainly not the case. Um, but rather, his his point is even as you try to organize your life and determine where you're going to be and what you do, you you need to do everything from the mindset that you'll only go where God permits you to go and you'll only do what God permits you to do and you'll accomplish the things that God wants you to accomplish and everything is under his is under his control and and under his um under his his guidance and love and and protection and and providence so yeah that's i think is the greater point that that James is making here is not so much that uh, you know, you can't be an architect because an architect has to actually make plans for, you know, a building and setting up a schedule and things of this nature. But rather that as you go about your life, as you go about planning your life, you recognize that you're not actually the one who's in control of things. You know, it's I think a great example of this would be, uh, you know, what, what's become very common in uh, the sort of the post birth control world, you know, after the advent of the of the birth control pill, is that people talk about uh, having children in the same way that they talk about, um, you know, uh, uh, gardening around their house. So, you know, oh, it'd be nice to have, you know, maybe one set of rose bushes here and this over that, and we'll just kind of go pick them up from the store and set things that way. You know, as opposed to the, sort of the more scriptural way, the, the um, far more scriptural way of viewing things from the perspective that God is the author of life. God is the one who opens and closes the womb. And so, you know, when you talk about having children, the answer is not so much, well, I, you know, this is how many trinkets I want to have in my life, but rather uh, as the Lord wills, he will open the womb and close the womb as, as he desires. I think that's, you know, it'd be a helpful example for what James is, is getting at here. So it's not so much that you say to your, that you don't think about, you know, how babies are made or how you're going to, you know, where you're going to put them or what you're going to name them or, um, you know, how you're going to feed them and things of that nature. But it's just simply recognizing that God is the one who is going to order and structure your life and that you live according to his will rather than uh, building the life that you want to build and then letting God into it as much as is comfortable and convenient for you. So the it, the words themselves that James puts into the mouth of, of those who say these things, it's not so much the the planning that may be there or the the thoughts as to, to what's there, but the, the arrogance, as he will use that term later in this passage, that lies behind it to think that that I'm the pilot of my life, to go back to that that example that you used, and and to think that I somehow have that control. And I, I do think that the the example of birth control is a, a very good one to consider. I guess one of the, one of the things though that I would come back with is can we can we take that too far? Because I, I think, well, not too far. We want to let James say what he's going to say and, and believe it and do it. But I, I wonder sometimes about some of the more I don't hesitate to call them trivial, but matters like planting rose bushes around my houses or house. What what do I like, do I need to, or you see people wondering, maybe this is like, I need to know what God's will is as to who I should marry. I need to know what God's will is as to which college I should attend or what car I should buy or where I should live or what job I should have. And they, it's like they go too far on the other side of this, trying to discern the will of God where he hasn't revealed. Does that make sense? Sort of the, the corrective that I'm trying to bring out? Yeah. And uh, so Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, who's uh, you know frequently on KFUO, um, has a has a great uh, 
observation about this where he talks about in in much of American evangelical religious culture, which is even if you're not an evangelical, this is just the stuff that's kind of wafting through the air. The strange thing is, is that they have a completely backwards understanding of how free will works according to what the scriptures teach us. So, and, and the, you know, the Lutheran confessions give us really good examples about this. So we are not free as the scriptures teach us in, in spiritual matters. So we are completely dead in our sins and unable to choose for ourselves to believe in Jesus Christ. The only way that we can come to believe in Christ is by the Holy Spirit creating faith in our hearts. But we are completely free in um, temporal things. So, you know, and the Lutheran Confessions talk about, you know, you know, one of their examples is whether or not to get married. So, um, and, but the strange thing about our culture is that they view th- everything backwards. So the most important decision in the entire world is one that God completely and totally leaves up to you and has no input in whatsoever, according to them. So whether or not you're going to believe in Jesus Christ, hey, that's completely and totally up to you. You make the decision for yourself. But when it comes to whether or not you have Captain Crunch or Lucky Charms for breakfast, God has some hidden will that you need to somehow figure out. Otherwise, you're going to be living in defiance of him. And this is a just a, a brutally enslaved way to live. Uh, what, the way we ought to understand these things, and I think if we, you know, kind of getting back to the text of James with this, is that, you know, James doesn't say... He, the, the problem is not with um, is not with what these guys are saying, but with what, what they're not saying. That's what he's condemning. He's not saying the whole point. The whole point is he's not saying don't go off and plan your life. Uh, he's 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 not saying you need to f- discern the secret will of God before you do anything, or else you're going to be living in defiance of His word. Mm-hmm. Rather, James is just simply saying when you go out and plan your life, recognize that everything you do, you do according to the will of God, and God might make things impossible for you, and He might open doors over here, uh, and you recognize that you're under His authority the entire way. So, you know, the way that we ought to understand this as Christians is. Uh, you know, for example, when it, when it comes to the idea of marriage, uh, so if a guy has two, if a guy has two women that he can marry, you know, Susie and Jane, uh, he's perfectly free to ask either one of them to marry him. He's not sinning by asking one and not the other. But once he is married, he lives according to God's law concerning how it is that husbands ought to treat their wives. So he's faithful to his wife. He honors and keeps the sixth commandment. He loves and cherishes his wife, guides her into leading a Christian life. That's the thing that matters, not that God has some secret will that we have to somehow figure out and uncover. And of course, the thing that's always so funny to me about that is that when people think that way, when they think that there's this sort of secret will of God that they have to uncover, magically, the will of God is always the thing that they want to do. So, you know, I've never in my life ever met someone who said, oh, I got, you know, I had this new job offer and it's in a better part of the country to live in that's much prettier and I'd get paid a whole lot more and my kids would have more friends there and everyone would be happier there. I really need to pray about what the Lord wants me to do. I need to figure out what the Lord's will for me is. And then when they do that, God's will is always the thing that they want to do. And and likewise, you know, if a guy has two women that he can marry and one of them is very is very sweet and wonderful and beautiful and the other is n- none of those things, the guy never comes back and goes, oh, no, I prayed about it and God is making me marry this woman that I'm not attracted to and that I don't like at all. That never happens. So I think a lot of times what's going on with that is people just want to feel like they can have some assurance that God is with them and wherever it is that they're going. And really when that happens, what they ought to be looking at here is, is these words from James is that James isn't saying figure out some way to find my hidden will about these things, but just recognize that everywhere you go in your life and everything you do, whatever happens to you and whatever is withheld from you is going to be, is going to be given and withheld from the will of God. And you just simply need to recognize that and embrace that. That that was that was a very helpful explanation to that, so that we don't fall off on that that side that our the American evangelicalism around us seems to have fallen off on. And then what I think can often happen is when you quote make that wrong decision or something goes wrong, well well then you're you're questioning God's goodness and and you are questioning His will for your life, and, or you end up questioning yourself. And those are all places I don't think that James would would have us go, but but rather as you said, just to to recognize that. He is God, you're not. Let his let his will be done and pray for that 
as you do these things, whatever they may be, where you have that temporal freedom, as you said. And and the the reason behind this is is kind of right there in the middle of what we've been talking about. He he says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Only God knows that. And he says, well, and who are you, by the way? You're you're just a mist. You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It, I mean that that's sounds pretty harsh to a degree, but we also know people are made in God's image. What what's James doing with that image there? Yeah, I think James's point is um, that you know, just speaking about you know, kind of in, in the in the way that Solomon will oftentimes speak, you know, how uh, man is here for a moment and then is gone, and and this is speaking from the perspective of man viewing himself apart from God, that you are nothing but vapor. You're here for a moment and then you're gone. You know, th- these are these kind of existential worries that that people have, right? That no one will remember you after you're gone. I mean, if you if you think about human civilization, the vast majority of humans who have ever lived in the history of the world have been completely forgotten. No one remembers their names. No one knows what they looked like. No one wrote songs about them. You know, I mean, so if, if you're looking at people a thousand years ago, we know about like, you know, like they're like five people from a thousand years ago that anybody remembers. So it's, it, it's a thought that absolutely fills you with despair. And, and it's, and it's something that when you combine that with the arrogance of, of mankind, who, while we are living, we think we're the center of the universe and we think we're so important. I think with the point that James is making here is that apart from God's love, apart from God, uh, apart from what is revealed to you in the scriptures about how God created the heavens and the earth to dwell with you forever. So apart from all of that, if you just look at what man is, he's here for a second and then he's gone and you don't matter. So who on earth do you think you are to de- to declare uh, that you're going to build and make this great and wonderful world for yourself? So, but rather where, where we do find the great value of man is not in, in what man accomplishes or in who man is in and of himself, but how it is that God loves mankind. Right. So, so what, so it doesn't matter. And this is, should give Christians a profound amount of comfort. So it doesn't, it shouldn't matter to you at all. It doesn't, uh, whether or not people remember you in a hundred years, you don't need to leave a legacy. You don't need to be remembered in that sense because you have something far greater than a, than a generation yet unborn having heard about you. You belong to the God who created the heavens and the earth. You're so precious to him that he created this very world in order to be with you. And from the foundation of that world, he declared that he would redeem you through the blood of his son. Uh, you have something far greater than that. And if, and if in fact, that's the one who created the universe and who has put everything into place, well, then you should be pretty confident and pretty content letting, letting, I don't like, you shouldn't say letting him take the wheel, but recognizing that he has the wheel. You should rejoice to know that you are not, the pilot and that Jesus isn't the, is the co-pilot, but that Jesus is in fact the one who is driving everything in your life because the, the very existence of the universe is, is there precisely for Jesus to have that control over your life and to usher you into his kingdom. Yeah, one one day, one day the the KFU archives may not have a recording of Sharper Iron, and and it's hard to imagine that YouTube would ever lose Lutheran satire videos. Yeah, that's but, not hard but, to imagine. <laughs> not, not, hard, <laughs> not hard to imagine at all. They may they may boot the channel any moment now. <laughs> but but even if those those legacies are gone, as as you say, like what what does the Christian really have? Where I mean, oh James James does this elsewhere. Where where does he talk about treasure in this in this book? Where where is your heavenly treasure? talks about the the riches being eaten by moths that's that's after this text isn't it that's in James chapter 5 you know where 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 is the I, I record these episodes out of out of order there now everybody knows it I don't always record them in yeah. order and so I sometimes I forget where it is but I mean this is James is going to go to this where the look gold and silver corrode they rust it, it gets burned by fire it's gone your your legacy is gone you you are a mist. James says, and, and and as you said, that is a very depressing thought apart from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in, in whom nothing can separate us from God's love. And, and we have those true riches that will never be destroyed. And and two, I mean, you know, to, to connect some of these words of James here in this text to, to Jesus' own words, 
again, Matthew chapter six stands out to me where he talks about tomorrow having enough trouble of its own. So don't worry about today. And within that context, he talks about the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, how insignificant they are. And yet God takes care of them. And here James says very clearly how insignificant human life is apart from God. And yet, look, we are of more value than they. And and what, as you said, what great comfort is ours as Christians in the midst of this when we simply recognize that God is the pilot and not us. Yeah, that's you know that's exactly right. That the um, the great joy we have is I mean this is something we we experience in every other aspect of our lives. So it should give us profound comfort as Christians, right? You know, so if you're if you're a soldier and you're on a battlefield and you know there's some seven foot behemoth that you're all of a sudden supposed to square off against. Uh, and you know that you can't win. And then all of a sudden your champion comes onto the field who's bigger and stronger than that guy and lays him to waste. You don't look at that and and go, oh, I was the co-pilot there. You go, oh, thank God that I didn't have to do that. Uh, you know, it, when you're having surgery and the doctor says to you, all right, this is the part of your body that we need to cut, that, that we need to get rid of. Uh, and you don't, and you don't f- feel sorrow over the fact that you don't get to be the one cutting out your appendix or whatever it is. You rejoice to know that while you are not qualified and capable of doing that, the one who is capable of bringing healing to you is there and is, has promised to do it. So in the same way, th- this ought to um, ought to give us profound comfort that, yes, you are just a nameless, faceless soldier on the battlefield, but your champion has come to fight for you so that you don't have to fight for yourself and inevitably use, uh, lose. Yes, you are some hopeless uh, guy who never could have possibly passed medical school. I'm certainly speaking of myself here. I barely passed high school chemistry. So, uh, so, so you're nothing. You, you have your vapor. And yet, while you were vapor, God chose to love you and to claim you as his own and to place himself in charge of everything that happens in your life. And that is should be of, of profound comfort because it means that you don't have to do something that you should know very well you are not qualified and capable of doing. Mm. And, and that that same thought takes away all boasting, as James would, would have us yeah. in verse verse 16. You know, you're boasting in arrogance, that boasting is is evil. This this takes away our boasting, and to use Pauline language, puts our boasting in the Lord and in him alone. Now, Pastor Feeney, verse verse 17 there just kind of I don't know, it, it's sitting there at the end. He says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. How how does that relate to what James has been saying so far? Yeah, I think the point that James has with that is, uh, so on the one hand, God is in, is in control of your life, and he's going to determine where you go and what happens and, and all of those things. But at the same time, he has also given you your conscience, and he's given you his law, he's given you his words so that you know how to lead a faithful Christian life wherever he's led you. So, you know, kind of to go back to the example of of marriage. Um, you know, I, I, you've probably heard this. I know I've certainly heard this from people when they talk about a divorce that they had and you say, what happened? They go, Oh, I just married the wrong person. And you generally know what people mean by that, but it's a bad way to speak. And people shouldn't talk that way because how do you know that you're married to the, or they'll say, I I didn't marry the person I should have married. You know, it wasn't the person I was meant to be with. All right. Well, for Christians, I have a very easy uh, test for you to figure out whether or not you're married to the person uh, you were meant to be with are you married to that person? And if the answer is yes, that's the person you're meant to be with. Uh, You are free to marry that person, free not to marry that person. But once you enter into that marriage, once you go to where God has led you, God has told you how to be a faithful husband or wife. And so you are, and so you therefore are to live according to that. And if you fail to do that, you don't then turn around and blame God, which is essentially what people are doing when they say, I married the wrong person, or this wasn't the person I was meant to be with. You recognize this was my own failing. This was my own failure to live according to God's word. And I have sins to repent of on account of that. Hmm. So Pastor Finney, we've got just under four minutes left here. Summarize the text for us, and again, remind us of the the good news that is here for us. Yeah, so, well, really the good news is uh, that in Christ Jesus, we are all above reproach. 
So because Christ has died for our sins, then those sins no longer exist. They've been erased from the memory of God. And one of the things about living as a Christian is, you know, this is kind of the whole forgive, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us thing, is that to believe and to confess that Jesus has saved you and has forgiven your sins is by default or a de facto confession of the fact that Jesus has also forgiven the sins of your neighbor, especially in the sense of your fellow Christians who have received that forgiveness through faith. So it's treating your neighbor's sins the way that you know that God treats them. And ultimately, that is what James is getting at in this text. You are a Christian. So you know that Jesus died for the sins of your neighbor. You know that the same blood that that erased those sins from the memory of God, that erased your sins from the memory of God, has also erased those sins, uh, the sins of your neighbor from the memory of God. So live according to that. God is the one who's the judge. He's the one who's ultimately going to decide who are the sheep and the goats. He's the one who's going to decide which sins are born, uh, which which sins need to be bound to people and which sins need to be loosed from them. I mean, there is, of course, a sense in which the church is involved in this, but that's not really what James is getting into in this text. So leave judgment to God uh, and recognize that God is ultimately the judge and the Lord over your in- entire life. So wherever you go, whatever you do, uh, treat your neighbor the way that uh, Jesus wants you to treat him. Uh, treat your neighbor in a manner that recognizes that Jesus is Lord and treat your own life in a manner that recognizes that Jesus is Lord. Treat your own life in the sense that you recognize that in the same way that you're not in charge of your neighbor's judgment, you're not in charge of, of your own existence. Pastor Hans Feeney is the pastor at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri, helping us this morning with James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. Pastor Feeney, thanks for being our guest today. God is God, and you are not. Who are you to judge? Who are you to speak evil against your brother in Christ? Who are you to think that you are piloting the course of your life? God is God. He is the judge. He is the one whose will directs your life, and his will for you is good. He has shown his will for you in his son, Jesus Christ, who has died and risen for you and for your brother to unite you together in himself as one by faith in him. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.